And uh, Roy, he called me Friday noonish. And uh, he's like, I don't know if you've got something in your back pocket that'll work. And, and I said, well, I'm teaching ABF. I can just pull that out and use that. And told him what we'd be teaching. And he kind of laughs, says, well, you could continue in Mark. Because long story short, if I was to try to teach through what I did in ABF, we'd be here till one o'clock probably, just because it would require so much background to make sure that we're all going the same direction. So I won't do that to you this time. Um, Had he called me this morning, I would have done that to you. Needless to say, we'll be continuing in Mark, the journey with Jesus. Last week, we were in chapter 8, And just by way of review, in verses 1 through 10, we see the feeding of the 4,000. And this takes place earlier when Jesus fed the 5,000. That was an almost strictly Jewish crowd. The feeding of the 4,000, and this isn't just 4,000 people. This is just 4,000 men that they counted. Maybe 12 or 15 or 20,000 people were fed. This was a probably a predominantly... Gentile crowd or mixed race crowd, Jewish slash Gentile crowd because it was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember, there were seven baskets of bread left over and not just a bushel basket, not that that wouldn't be impressive enough, but huge baskets that take two guys to carry. And then almost immediately after that takes place, Jesus bumps into some Pharisees. And the Pharisees demand a sign. But if you really are who you say you are, then show us something to prove it. And my first thought is, reading that, it's like, where were you 15 minutes ago when 20,000 people ate? But evidently, not a big deal. That meeting ends rather abruptly with Jesus and his disciples getting in a boat and, and traveling north a ways into the region of Caesarea Philippi, another region there. And they get out of the boat and they come in, bump into a blind man that Jesus heals. And Jesus tells the blind man to be quiet. Don't, don't even go home. Don't tell anybody what I've done. And it's always been a mind-numbing thing to me. If you're blind and then you're not, aren't there questions to be answered? Which is why Jesus said, don't even go home. I don't know where he went. If he obeyed Jesus' command in that thing, I don't know where he went. But from there, then we've come to verse 27 through 30, where Jesus asked his disciples a question. Now, I guess before we get there, let me go back. Because when they're on the boat ride, after leaving the Pharisees, going north, Jesus begins to ask the, his disciples begins to, doesn't ask them, I guess, he's warning them against the sin of the Pharisees and of Herod. And he compares it to yeast or to leaven. 
And, you know, you, you add a little bit of yeast to your loaf of bread and it just grows and grows. And the disciples, they're tracking right along with Jesus and they all look at each other and it's like, <gasps> we left that confrontation with the Pharisees so fast, we didn't bring any leftover lunch. And Jesus is mad because he's hungry now and we forgot the lunch. And so, oh, it's another one of these parables. He's taking a shot at us. And Jesus finally asked us all but say, guys, this isn't about lunch. If we wanted lunch, don't you think I could make it happen? And then he heals the blind man. But it's key to remember that interaction on the boat. Because in verse 27 of chapter 8, through the end of the chapter, and I'll just read it here, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? They told him. John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So you can imagine, this has been a full couple days for the disciples. There's been a lot going on. There's been a lot to process. As they're off the boat, and as they're walking through the villages of Caesarea, Jesus asked them a question. And I'm sure they didn't go anywhere without Jesus asking a question. But he asked them the question, what are people saying? What are you hearing? Who are people asking, or what are people asking you about me? Who do they say that I am? And the responses that they give are the same responses, I believe it's in chapter 6 of Mark. But hey, some, some think you're John the Baptist, you're back. Remember, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod 
almost three years earlier. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. And there are those, no, he's not John the Baptist. We saw his head. He's not Elijah because, well, yeah, it's not Elijah, but he's, he's one of the other prophets. So upon hearing that, Jesus said the penetrating question that he asked all of us, who do you say that I am? That's what everyone else is saying. Who do you say that I am? And the amazing thing is here, and part of it's the book of Mark, it's all about action and it's written for those with ADD. But Peter jumps right in and answers for the group. And I don't know if this is something that they'd been talking about amongst themselves or if in this moment the Holy Spirit reveals it to Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, you have a fuller account with more details. But Peter jumps in and answers for the group and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. What? You finally get it? And I'm not going to let you tell anybody. Keep your mouth shut. Why? Why would he tell the blind man that he healed, don't go home and don't tell anybody? It's because of the mindset that they had. They now understood the truth, but they had it in the wrong context. They didn't understand how it was to fit. Because Jesus is going to go on from here and say, this is the truth. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that we've got that straight, now we can go on and set the record straight concerning what I'm here to do. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Jewish mindset in waiting for the Messiah was that when the Messiah came, he was coming as conquering hero and powerful political leader. He was coming to throw Rome on its ear and establish the kingdom in the here and now, right now. And Israel was going to be returned to its former glory, not seen since the death of Solomon. The Messiah was coming to promote the good of the Jewish nation and to punish the Gentiles. That's who the Messiah was going to be. That is what the disciples believed. And now that they finally get the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, now Jesus has to correct their wrong thinking about what he is going to do. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Suffer. 
You'll see twice in this chapter, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. You go back to the book of Daniel, and that's where it takes, finds its beginnings. The Messiah called the Son of Man. And as Jesus refers to himself as this, it really is, throughout the Gospels, I think it's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It downplays the wrong thinking of the messianic thinking that the Jews had. When they heard Messiah, they thought conquering hero. When they heard Messiah, they thought of MacArthur coming ashore in the Philippines to take it back. I shall return. They didn't see a suffering servant. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Must. There was no other option. There was no other path. There was no other way forward. This was the path for him to take. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders those who were looked to for leadership, those who kind of set the agenda, set the priorities for the nation. He was going to be rejected by the leaders. He was going to be killed. What? The Messiah doesn't get killed. The Messiah kills everyone who stands in his way. He must be killed, and he must rise again on the third day. And the little phrase to start verse 32, and he said this plainly. He said this clearly. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus, we find him speaking in parables. And they came to him and they say, why are you always talking in parables? Why don't you just come out and say it? So I speak this way, So that the people who are really interested will follow up. And I'll explain it to them. But for those who are just kind of hanging around for what they can get, they won't care and well, they'll just move on. So Jesus wasn't talking in parables here. He wasn't talking around the issue. There was zero ambiguity. There you go, Pat. Three big words this morning. If you were in ABF, you heard two others. But there, there was nothing ambiguous or foggy, or cloudy, or hazy about what Jesus was communicating. I must be rejected by the leadership of the country. I must be killed. And I must rise again on the third day. It was clear. And the disciples were desperately looking to invent duct tape to wrap around their heads so they wouldn't explode. It was so far out of their realm of thinking of what they'd grown up with and what they'd been taught that while they were hearing it plainly, they could not get their heads wrapped around it. And they wouldn't get their heads wrapped around it until Acts 2. Verse 
Jesus refers to himself as the son of man to eliminate, to put aside, not that he could fully eliminate the wrong thinking, but to to downplay the messianic image that these guys were carrying. This is the path I must take. Now why would it be so hard for these guys to accept that? Because if you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and we're the 12 closest to you, (laughs) we got a special place in what's coming. You're the conquering hero, and we're your 12? We're set up pretty good for what's to come. And what Jesus has to make them understand is that, you know what, guys? I'm the suffering servant and you're my disciples, which means there are some heavy ramifications for you guys. There are some hard things for you to endure. And if I can't make you understand it, when I'm gone, what are you going to do? And Jesus said this plainly and Peter took him aside. Now remember, it was just Peter 10 minutes earlier, 15 minutes earlier. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. It was an hour earlier. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus pats him on the back, say, hey, you didn't figure this out. The Holy Spirit revealed it to you. We see that in the book of Matthew's account. And Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. And now suddenly he says, yeah. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but you must suffer? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I can just see him grabbing Jesus by the arm, hooking him around the elbow. Come here! This isn't the way it works. And to rebuke, to speak harshly. Now just stop. He just acknowledged that this is the Christ the son of the living God. And he has the hair to take him by the elbow and rebuke him? I'm glad we would never presume upon the mercy of God to do anything like that when life is difficult or hard or unexpected. I'm glad we learned from Peter. But as Peter is just getting warmed up, I can imagine he probably didn't get too far in when Jesus is probably very sharp. Peter! Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Get out of my sight. Get out of my way. I've just said plainly, this is what I must do. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. I must rise again on the third day. So it's not all hopeless. 
And here's Peter. It's like, oh, no, you don't. You don't must. You, we're going this way. Jesus says, no, this is the way I'm going. You get behind me. You're not in charge. You're not leading the way. You're not changing the direction I'm going. I'm submitting to the will of my Father. This is the way. This is where I'm going. Get out of my way. What you're worried about is your position in the kingdom. What you're worried about is the stuff you're going to gain if I'm the political hero, the conquering war hero. That's what you're worried about. Quit worrying about the temporary stuff. Look to see what God is doing. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. And again, I, there must have been a bunch of people kind of standing around waiting for Jesus to do something. He just fed like 20,000 people. You know, there might be lunch involved. He healed a blind man. Maybe we'll see something cool. There was always a crowd around Jesus. And as he's addressing his disciples here, he's like, all right, guy, ah. I said it as plainly as I know how. He says, all right, everybody addresses the crowd, gathers those around him. He says, listen, if anyone, anyone, not just my disciples, not just the Jewish people, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone. It's an invitation to all. Let him deny himself. Probably a good, the best way to think about this is let him put aside all selfish ambition. Remember, Peter's just saying, this isn't the way you're going. It's not going to end well for me if you do this. So in a continuation of this rebuke of Peter, let him deny himself. Put aside, put down, put away all selfish ambition, all self-interest. This is what I want my life to look like and this is where I'm going and God, I hope you bless it. If you're going to follow me, deny yourself. Your life is no longer about what you want. It's about learning to discern what does God have for me and then moving that way. Put it off. Take off the selfishness. And as we see throughout Jesus, he he says it all the time in different ways. You see it throughout the New Testament. You see it in the Old Testament. Never in Scripture do you simply see that stop doing something or put off something or put something aside. You never just do that. Every time you put something aside, you take something up. He says you don't just deny yourself. You then take up your cross and follow me. Keep following me.
When Jesus says, take up your cross, this is not a Jewish proverb. This is not a Jewish saying. This is taken from the Roman world. People just didn't take up a cross. They were given the cross to carry. It was always, and you carried the cross to the place of your execution. It was a way of Rome humiliating the condemned. It was also a way of saying, you wouldn't submit, you wouldn't obey our our authority. (laughs) All right, here we go. You'll take up your cross and everybody's going to see you're submitting to our authority now. It was symbolic of laying down your ambitions to pick up and follow Christ's ambitions. I'm going to lay down my plans and I'm going to take up Christ's plans. I'm going to deny myself, and as I put myself off, put off my plans, I'm going to take on Christ's plans. I'm going to take up my cross and keep following Jesus. We're called to bear the cross of Christ in order to put off the old self, to put off the sin nature. To put on the new and the righteous nature. When Jesus went to the cross, he won the war. But when he was resurrected, he won the war. He conquered sin, and we take up the cross as an act of obedience and fellowship with the suffering Savior. In verses 35 through 38, Jesus elaborates on this statement. Deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. If you're going to cling to this life, you're going to forfeit the next. Take up the cross, deny yourself, follow me. If you subjugate your will to me now, you will gain peace now and later. If you choose to pursue the world in hopes of gaining everything you can, it means nothing because there's nothing waiting at the end of that. If you earn enough or are able to even buy the whole world, if that was possible, what can you give to God in exchange for your soul? We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot merit his forgiveness. We have nothing to offer. We cannot buy his peace or purchase his comfort or earn his blessing and security.
so we can deny ourselves and take up the cross and keep following Christ, keep following Jesus, or we can strive and try to do it and end up nowhere. And finally, he says, if you're ashamed of me, that's the same as rejecting me. If you don't like this plan, and you're going to come up with your own, if you're going to reject this, be ashamed of this, if you're going to be too ashamed, you're going to choose fear and unbelief over faith and trust, at the end of days, it's not going to end well. You then face judgment and condemnation because you can't earn this. So what, to be, so what we believe about who Jesus is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What we believe about who Jesus is affects and should, will determine our faith and our obedience. And at that point, the book of Mark takes a turn. From here on out, everything is focused on what Jesus is going to do. The book of Isaiah says he set his face like flint. This is what I must do. There's no other option. And if Jesus is the Son of God and our Messiah, and we believe that, I mean believe that, not just, but that is all we're trusting in, to be good enough. If Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then why wouldn't we abandon our selfish ambitions? Why wouldn't I put that away to take up my cross and follow him and keep following him? In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, we read, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And the most important question that we have to answer, I can't worry about what my kids or my, my friends or my family or anybody else, I can't worry about how they answer this. I have to answer this. They have to answer it for themselves. But Jesus continues to ask us, who do you say that I am? Because if he's just a teacher, if he's just a prophet, if he's just another philosopher, if he's just a rabbi, If he's just a martyr, that doesn't cut it. But if he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I believe that, 
then he's my savior. He's my hope. He's my salvation. And he's worthy of taking up the cross to keep following him. We choose to believe and follow or we choose unbelief and we wander about. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.